0: This is Chatter, I'm Shane Harris. This week, Andrew Weiss on visualizing Vladimir Putin.
1: Just because we think it's dumb or it got a lot of people killed doesn't mean Putin won't do it. He's shown us a lot of examples of what he's capable of and we can't just keep assuming that some happy ending is going to materialize that saves us from him. Russian official narrative now about the October Revolution is that it was a foreign plot, and that the lesson of the October Revolution is that Russia needs to be protected against this threat going forward. There's a whole generation of Americans out there who don't remember the Cold War, who weren't necessarily around during the Cold War, and who may not even remember 9-11. And graphic novels are magical, and they really speak to younger people.
0: Andrew Weiss, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: It's just great to be here. How are you doing, Shane?
0: I'm doing okay. It's good to see you. Um, You know, I think that we've had, I know we've had some Russia experts on the show before and some Putin experts, maybe one or two. I am confident we have never had a Russia or Putin expert who has written a graphic novel about the president of Russia. So you are a first in that regard. (laughs) <laughs>
1: Thanks. Well, I mean, it seems in Washington, you can't go very far without running into a Putin expert these days. So uh-huh. it's possible you've met one you just didn't know.
0: Oh, okay. It's possible. Yeah. Somebody else yeah. out there has a secret graphic novel <laughs> in their, their pocket. But your new book, which just came out in November, is called Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Uh, and it's illustrated by uh, Brian Box Brown. So this is a collaboration with you and an illustrator. Um, and, and, you know, while folks can't actually see this, I mean, this is if you thumb through this, it is a proper graphic novel. I mean, it is it is very I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. Putin looks very like Putin in a lot of these illustrations to me. And you illustrate him at various points in his life, which is very interesting. As well, um, and I want to talk about the graphic novel and why you decided to to attack this subject um, uh, in this form. But but first, I want to talk about you because I don't think it's necessarily obvious for how to people how one becomes an expert on Russia and how be- becomes a Russia watcher. Um, but let's just kind of start at the beginning. Talk about where you grew up and and kind of what your first. Uh, introduction to, I suppose, then the Soviet Union was, and kind of what turned you on to this as a subject?
1: I grew up in that famous um, incubator for Sovietologists, which is called Rodeo Drive, Beverly Hills. And <laughs> I, um, I there may be there. a lot
0: of Russians <laughs> in Beverly Hills now.
1: Now there are, yeah. Uh, yeah. But in the 80s, when I was growing up there, I was, I was shall we say, a disaffected teenager um, who thought LA was a pretty flashy place. And mm my brother's college roommate visited LA at some point and had just come back from studying in the Soviet Union. And I thought that is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. And I threw myself literally from the first day of college into studying Russian and learning language and culture and history. And at the point that I was in college was really early in the Gorbachev era. So it was a dominant news story that was, you know, of, Great interest throughout the late 1980s, and then um, after I finished grad school, I ended up working at the Pentagon. And sort of my career was very much over in my government career was very much overlapping with this period of incredible turmoil, and was a fantastic time to serve in the State Department and the White House as well as the Pentagon.
0: What was it about you know meeting somebody who had traveled in Russia, and what was kind of the allure of Russia? If you're you're growing up in Kind of privileged California was it? Did, did Russia just seem as far afield from your experience as anything?
1: Yeah, it could not have been more antithetical um, to the environment I grew up in, which was you know very heavily the entertainment industry and all the flashiness of. Uh, I'm dating myself here, but sort of Brett Easton Ellis, Los Angeles oh, yeah, of the 1980s. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
1: and I really thought, in a naive way, that. You know, the Soviet Union was the antipode to the United States, and it was a parallel universe. And, you know, I set myself from a pretty early stage of this, the goal of like, I want to go study in the Soviet Union. So I, I did that. But it also when I actually saw the Soviet Union up close and also witnessed the, the revelations about um, how lies and terror were the glue that held together the Soviet system. Um, You know, it really animated me when I left my uh, study abroad program that I really wanted to serve in the U.S. government and sort of get my licks in in the Cold War. Unfortunately, I showed up at the Pentagon in summer of 1991, right before the August coup. So my, my ability to get any licks in was pretty, pretty limited. (laughs)
0: Okay, to get at the closing act. Um, were were your parents uh, generally supportive of this interest that you had in the, the grand communist state or did, were they uh, suspicious of this?
1: I, my, my family was all about public service. Um, mm-hmm. I'm the black sheep, though, of my family, because out of my father, mother and brother, I'm the only one who did not become a federal prosecutor. And huh. so I didn't go to law school and I sort of, you know, was able to justify that by saying I'm working on these other issues. And that was a, a nice
0: dodge. Yeah. It, it, it was, it, 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 I don't think of uh, public service and Rodeo drive necessarily is going together. So, I mean, is that, you probably were around of a lot of other people who thought that going and being a federal prosecutor was probably a crazy idea. Why not be a movie producer?
1: It, it, that's true. My family ended up in California. My mom's a, you know, I don't know, fourth or fifth generation Californian, but there was a promise of California that brought my father out from the East coast and to work in the U S attorney's office in the early 1960s. Um, But, you know, my family always sort of acted as if like the entertainment industry was not our thing. And my Mm. parents, my mom was a judge. My dad was a a lawyer. Um, So like the notion that we weren't really of LA was, was kind of part of the family mythology. Um, Yeah. I think, for me growing up in los angeles though the longer i've been away the more i really i'm interested in los angeles my wife's from california we we spend a lot of time back here um i'm actually talking to you from palo alto right now where i'm on a work trip but it it is a magical place and so whatever teenage ideas i had i guess you don't trust anyone to make good life decisions when they're 18. now i'm asking myself what was i thinking this is awesome (laughs)
0: it's (laughs) funny i had a different experience i only lived in los angeles for a year shortly after graduating college and kind of had this immediate reaction to it that it was oh this is culturally you know, vacant, and these people are just paper thin, and it's so superficial. Um, But the further the longer I've been away from them, the more I've realized that there's so much there is an appeal. And there is kind of an interesting, I mean, it's not necessarily an intellectual city, but it is a highly creative place, right? I mean, it is the seed of the film industry. And, and <clears throat> so much of our culture is driven by it. So there's a lot to recommend Los Angeles, not least the weather.
1: Absolutely. And it's yeah. changing a lot. I mean, there's been a huge demographic and sort of sociocultural shift since i grew up here you know 40 yeah. years ago i mean it's a different yeah. place and then there is a funny little fraternity of and sorority of national security people who grew up in beverly hills just i don't know if you're aware of this trivia but um michelle flournoy grew up in beverly yeah. hills as Was did that Ad- right as did admiral mike mullen the former chairman of the joint chiefs
0: no kidding yeah. well and you've got the rand corporation right in santa monica too right
1: yeah yeah, yeah.
0: So, so talk about your first jobs in government. I mean, you went to work at the Pentagon. You worked on the NSC. Kind of, What was your entree into um, federal service?
1: My very first job in the federal government was working for the Department of the Army, and that lasted for a little more than six months where I was working on budget issues. And then I had the very good fortune to move to – this is in a Republican administration, the first Bush administration – work for someone named eric edelman who was okay. a very uh distinguished foreign service officer who went on to become ambassador in uh, czech republic and finland and turkey served as undersecretary of defense for policy and to sort of see how a you know a very hard charging uh very well uh experienced very experienced foreign service officer operated as your first boss that really basically set me on a, a really, I think, productive trajectory for my career. But it also showed me that the, you know, the different agencies that I served at all have different priorities and not in a bad way, but it was just really interesting for me. I served at the White House um, at the end of my career, but I had also spent time at the State Department. Um, so most of my career was always sort of focused on the policy end of things, as opposed to the analytical end of things. There's a pretty, as you know, pretty carefully delineated separation between intelligence analysis and policy analysis and my work was always on the latter the sort of what do you do about something it's one thing to just admire problems um as my former boss bill burns likes to say it's another thing to really think about what is it the u.s has to do what are the interests at stake how do we advance those interests and it's a very different part of your brain frankly that has to weigh not only the, you know, the limits of US power, but the potential risks of applying it and wanting to balance those very carefully. And that's something that's, you know, I think a perennial source of interest for me right now, if we you know, shift to the present day and you look at what's going on in the war in Ukraine, there are plenty of people who want US policy to be more proactive or try this thing, or, you know, open up this spigot or send this weapon system it's another thing to be the policymaker who actually has to think through, is that a good idea? Is that going to change the dynamics? So, uh, so much that it outweighs some of the downsides and, you know, there, there can be you know, overly cautious responses to those kinds of things, but I, I think it really is a, it's a, it's a unique uh, and sort of disciplining uh, uh reality when you when you think about if we do this have we thought through have we you know troubleshot every aspect of a decision that's that's a very different approach to looking at the world than just like i hate this or i'm angry about this or i want to push back today because it makes us look bad on the front page of a newspaper um And, you know, I think, you know, my career was really, really, you know, always about trying to address those things in my scholarly incarnation at Carnegie Endowment, where I work now. That's really been, you know, front and center um, to
0: my work. When you were coming in, you know, entering this kind of budding Russia expert who wants to take on these policy issues and, you know, the Soviet Union is collapsing and it's now we're entering into this period of just tremendous transition. I mean, what were your thoughts about And you've been studying a system that was, you know, um, certainly by the time you started paying attention to Russia and the Soviet Union, I'm sure there was a little bit of the writing on the wall that things were changing. But to come in in 91 when you're at this pivot point, what was that like for you, particularly as somebody who was just starting out in a career?
1: Well, the unraveling of the Soviet uh, role in Eastern Europe, the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, and then the unraveling of the Soviet Union itself were very scary at the time. And there were a lot of questions about, is this going to be okay? And now looking back on it, it all feels like that was easy or that went pretty well. Um, at various stages, there was a real risk of violence. Um, I write about this in the book, where there are these scenes of you know Putin in Dresden, where he was serving as a junior mid-level KGB officer and witnessing the fall of the Berlin wall and people power up close and how scary that looked to him. Um, I didn't realize, you know, when I came into government, how close Germany had come to violence and the sort of Tiananmen square type outcome, uh, was pretty narrowly averted um, and pretty much averted by sort of flukes, not just by design. Um, the similar story that was really clear as the Soviet Union collapsed and when I first started working in Office of the Secretary of Defense in early 1992, there was a lot of worry about violence and, and disruption. And the sort of first order problem had to do with dealing with the Soviet nuclear arsenal. And it was it's sort of now, you know, 30 years later, again, we take it for granted that that nuclear arsenal was brought back to Russia, that it was kept secure, that we then had all these big arms control agreements on how to make the Soviet arsenal lower, uh, smaller and bring U.S. and now Russian uh, strategic force levels lower and lower. But none of that was, uh, was in place um, to go so swimmingly. And a lot of creative foreign policy work was done to Make sure, particularly that Ukraine gave up the nuclear weapons that were deployed on its territory, that it didn't have actual control over, but were being used as a bargaining chip to try to get Russia to recognize um, Ukraine's territorial integrity, sovereignty, and independence. All these issues are obviously at the fore. Um, but for me, sitting in government, I'll be honest with you, I never totally understood why is there this fixation on the nuclear stuff? Hmm. Like, what is it about the nuclear stuff that makes everybody? put other things on hold, like respect for human rights, respect for human dignity. All those things seem to me at the time to be like, that's the big story here, is like Russia is changing, the countries of the former Soviet Union are becoming independent, and you guys are looking backwards. You're like looking at you know the 80s, 90s inheritance as the dominant issue of the moment, as opposed to what's happening on a grassroots level. And if I can just digress, There was a very interesting uh, debate in those days, which hasn't really gotten as much attention lately, which is that the Cheney Pentagon where I was working really viewed the primary challenge for U.S. policy as like how do we remove a peer competitor and how do we promote the collapse of the Soviet system? How do we make sure that Russia and the other successor states emerge in their own right and basically become more... Uh, both integrated into the international system, as well as more friendly toward the United States. And there was a huge fight between Cheney and his team and the NSC and the State Department, which were led at that point by Brent Scowcroft and Jim Baker. And they were really focused on the arms control stuff. Keeping the Soviet Union together was not anathema to them. They actually thought having a Soviet Union that could oversee the um, scaling back of uh, the Soviet military presence in Eastern Europe and then the, the arms control deals that were done in the Bush administration, those were the kind of jewels in the crown for for that team. And the Cheney people were completely at odds with them. Um, and it got to the point where they were actually disinvited to various meetings at the White House because they just had very different views. And it foreshadows some of the, the thinking that went into the war in Iraq. So it's just interesting to see mm. the continuum and how that played out.
0: Yeah, and how much of... Cheney's experiences in thinking and about policymaking and the power of it would have been forged in that very contentious moment uh, yeah yeah and the personal oh. animosities that, that <laughs> well, yes that these, <laughs> debates, <laughs> these debates these debates in which
1: I, I I missed out on a lot of that I got there after this. Um, this had all played out, because that was no, that's happening <laughs> in 1990 or so, 1989, 1990.
0: Sounds um, like it would have been a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. Um, so let's then talk about, uh, we'll talk about the book, and I'm sure th- we'll talk more about your career as we are, but let's get to the question of not just why you decided to write a book about Putin, but why do it as a graphic novel? Um, You know, I think – and this to some degree, I think probably a lot of people who aren't familiar with with graphic novels think of them as comic books. They think of it as something that's like a light kind of treatment. Um, That's not necessarily so with a lot of graphic novels. I think it's certainly not so with yours because this is actually a quite, you know, robust biography of Vladimir Putin. And I think, you know – seems to almost be doing a bit of, you know, psychoanalysis to some degree, which is really interesting. But why someone with your history and credentials and training, why did you decide to do this book, you know, a, as an illustrated biography?
1: Well, first of all, obviously graphic novels are cool. Like that's obvious. They are obvious. cool. That's obvious. <laughs> and, and the really good ones... And are you a
0: fan of them, by the way? I should ask. You know, I'm not
1: like uber nerd about graphic novels. I mean, I like them. I wouldn't say I've been... A devotee i've dipped in and out of different graphic novels the ones that are most famous and that influenced me the most are the ones that i think most people have to read um to have a sense of how amazing the genre is and those are books like mouse which is about the holocaust or persepolis which is about the iranian revolution Um, There's a really good one called Belonging, which was written by a German-American woman named Nora Krug that reckons Mm. with her family's complicity in the Holocaust. Mm. She recently illustrated Timothy Snyder's graphic novel version of On Tyranny, and she's an amazing stylist in her own right um, as well. But for me, I, I have a very lovely existence. I work at a think tank. You know, I get to work with an amazing set of American and Russian colleagues who are all fantastic analysts in this region. But I'm conscious of the fact, A, how privileged and special that existence is. But I'm also conscious that it's an insular world and that people who work in the foreign policy think tank world tend to be talking to each other. And when we speak to a reporter like you, um, oftentimes we're called upon to provide an instant assessment of something. It's hard to do the bigger 30,000-foot assessment when we're called to do that, which is a privilege. I don't want to downplay. But, you know, most people like me, if we do that, aren't able to provide the big thousand-year sweep of Russian history when you call us. Like, that's not what you're looking for when you call us. Um, likewise, I don't think the people who read the article that you ultimately produce have time necessarily, even if they're big Russia devotees of what's happening or Ukraine devotees, um, to plow through a 700 page academic book. And I think if we don't see that thousand year sweep, we may miss the story. And if we don't see who Putin is and a, you know the, how we got to this point over two-plus decades of ups and downs with him. And if we don't see who he is um, properly, we're going to make some big either factual mistakes or um, some policy mistakes. And that was a, a huge motivator for me of writing this book. And then the last part, which I think is something we don't talk about enough in Washington because it's a lot of you know middle-aged people um, who tend to dominate some of these policy areas as well as um, how they're framed is there's a whole generation of Americans out there who don't remember the Cold War, who weren't necessarily around during the Cold War, and who may not even remember 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book is aimed at, at all of these audiences. And graphic novels are magical because they can be read by super experienced people my age or older. I'm 54. Um, and they really speak to younger people. And I was trying to hit all of these audiences in one fell swoop.
0: And you mentioned, you know, being able to sort of, you know, see Putin, see him for who he is. And of course, one of the benefits of a graphic novel is that you literally are seeing him on every page and you're seeing him unfold from a very young child, you know, through this, you know, KGB officer and sort of the visual connection of it is obviously very strong. Um, You start with his childhood and, and, and talk a little bit about the environment that he grew up in there's actually a story in here that i had not heard before um not that by any means i feel like i've heard all Putin's stories but about um his mother nearly being carted off taken for dead and rescued at the last minute by putin's father tell that tell that story
1: yeah so putin's family are uh working class he is the third child Um, one of the kids died in infancy and the other died during the war. Um, basically Putin's father was a soldier who fought during the siege of Leningrad in a red army unit that was helping defend the city siege of Leningrad. Most people I think probably are familiar with this incredible period of hardship, um, Uh, Hundreds of thousands of people perished in Leningrad from starvation during this Nazi blockade. The city was never occupied by the Nazis. Um, And for Putin's mom, who was raising a baby, the baby ultimately, Putin's older brother, Victor, was taken from the family and sent to an orphanage because people were dying of starvation and they were trying to keep the kid alive. And the kid ultimately dies of diphtheria, the kid's buried in a mass grave. Putin's not born until the early 1950s, so he doesn't witness or experience any of this firsthand. Um, But Putin's mom nearly died during the war. And as with everything about Putin, you got to put a little bit of an asterisk because you're not totally sure what's true and what's embellished. But the family story that Putin has told is that his dad was wounded uh, at the front, comes home to check in on his family, and finds his wife in a cart of corpses being carted off and has a fight with the person driving the horse, um, driven cart and says, my wife's not dead yet. And the guy driving the cart says, well, she's almost dead. It's like a scene out of a Monty Python movie. I was just gonna say, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And Putin's dad supposedly like whacks the guy with his crutches and pulls his wife off of the cart and brings her home and nurses her back to health.
0: You know you said something there too about this. Is these are stories that Putin tells about his background. And the book is is, is full of this um, of things like that, these anecdotes. but you you get such a strong sense that from an early age that Putin had an idea about the kind of person that he wanted to be. And he's seeing a lot of this in stories of the day, and in particularly in in spy movies and spy shows. I mean you mentioned there's a blockbuster movie, The Sword and the Shield. That he's reading pulp spy novels that were the basis for a big hit TV miniseries, 17 Moments of Spring. You know, we think of Putin as this kind of experienced, you know, KGB officer. You spend a lot of time talking about Abby's ah, actually a fairly low-level kind of functionary hanging out in this not very important post. But he seems to be somebody who was enamored of this legend and of this idea and highly informed by the kind of mythology surrounding Soviet intelligence.
1: Yeah, and pop culture is a big theme of the book. And I don't want to totally be in spoiler mode, but, I'll, but I think it's important because Americans have been sold a narrative and a portrait of Putin that's very self-serving. And it's this kind of Dr. Evil mastermind. and he's And at times it's true, like the guy has run circles around. American leaders and has been quite successful, right? And we, we, you know, Putin's had a hell of a run for two plus decades for a guy who never made uh, senior ranks of the KGB. He barely, uh, you know, it's not 100% clear if he ever served at the lieutenant colonel level or if he simply was uh, major promotable um, in the end of his career. But in any event, Putin, when he was in ninth grade, set his sights on becoming a KGB officer. He was a big fan of all this pop culture at the time that promoted the image of the Soviet KGB as this great, uh, incredible intelligence service. And he loved the pop culture piece of it. But what's funny, and this is a big part of the book, is how when the Yeltsin family was casting around looking for a way to protect itself at the waning stages of Boris Yeltsin's presidency, they did focus groups and they were testing out an image to average Russians. Like, what does he like to see in a successor to this incapacitated alcoholic, Boris Yeltsin? And one of the things that came out in the focus group research is that people liked the the image that this George Clooney character had of, from the miniseries you mentioned. And it's it's literally the Soviet equivalent of George Clooney or John Hamm from Mad Men. It's a character actor named Vyacheslav Tikhonov who played the leading role in 17 Moments of Spring, which was a very um, popular Soviet miniseries in the early 1970s. And the Yeltsin family then was looking in its, around the, the Kremlin uh, circles, like who can play that role? Who can we cast as the John Hamm or the the George Clooney, and they they seized on Putin, who at that point, I mean, to be fair, doesn't really look a lot like George Clooney, doesn't really look a lot like John. <laughs> I don't <Kennedy>. think that <laughs> get
0: connection, right?
1: <laughs> but they dressed him up, and they they basically found a way with Putin to ensure their own safety. They had an unwritten or quasi-written understanding with him that he would protect them and that he would keep the Yeltsin system in place during his first term as Russia's president. And then they presented him to the world and to the Russian people as this virile man of action. And they made him wear sailor suits and they put him in the cockpit of jet fighters. And they did these things to create the image of a you know, cunning intelligence operative. And Putin, this wasn't really who the guy was, but he you know, was game and played, played along. Um, at times, and this is what's really interesting, the role has become the guy. And you do this long enough and you sit on top of the resources and the very personalistic system long enough. And you and I, Shane, might have been able to pull this off. I don't want to take any way, take anything away from Putin because he's he's clearly been rather successful at playing this role. But there's a funny panel in the book, which is that, you know, at some point, Putin's basically playing this role by heart. And, you know, we've not necessarily been in on the joke. And that's That's a big part of what motivated me to write the book was that Putin's image, especially after uh, the Russia scandals of the Trump era, people haven't always been able to see, like, where's the pop culture artifice? Where's the real Putin? And how do we disentangle the two?
0: One of the things that he, I I think, certainly wants to project is an idea that um, he is a hyper patriot that he is trying to restore Russian greatness. Um, I think, you know, the general narrative of him is that he's almost trying to bring back an era of Russian imperial greatness, not necessarily Soviet greatness. Is that genuinely felt, or do you think that's a bit of him playing the role uh, that he imagined for himself and that he appears to have been fitted for by, you know, his predecessor?
1: How much time you got, Shane? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Let's put him on the couch, Andrew. This is a
1: complicated issue. And think about job one when Putin took over. Yeltsin had not entirely, you know, these are not necessarily sins of of commission so much as they are sins of omission. You know, Russia was a shambles in the 1990s. And the Yeltsin era ended with Russia far worse off than it was when he took over in 1991. So he presides over a period of great upheaval, economic collapse, dislocation, and Putin is brought in. And I think when I was at the White House, when Putin's coming up in the the system really rapidly and goes through a succession of ever more important roles, first national security advisor and FSB head, then uh, prime minister for five minutes, and then as uh, presidential sort of uh, stand-in and then as president-elect and then as president, all of that's unfolding. And the worry at the White House and in the U.S. policy apparatus at the time was, who is this guy and is he equipped mm-hmm. to lead Russia? Because Russia's, you know, crashing ever faster and unraveling ever faster. So we had a lot of doubts that Putin was the guy to put a put a floor underneath all those, those uh, the, the, the downward movement. Um, and Putin managed to do it, none of that was foreordained. So I think some of this reflects things about Putin and about the people around him that were different than the people around Yeltsin. Um, So first and foremost, the job that Putin embraced at the beginning of his time was like, we need to strengthen the state and the interests of the state. And there's a word in Russian for this that I think really gets to who Putin is and the word is and it basically means an advocate of a strong state as an end in itself. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I fully got, I'm just copying to my own mistakes here, how that was a deeply encoded value that wasn't new or unique to Putin and sort of gets back to some of the cardinal aspects of how Russia has been ruled going back to the beginning of the Romanov era. But leaving that aside, being america's buddy and putin really threw himself into the role after 9/11 at being america's buddy was a, an and was a was a and was not an end in itself it was a it was a way to both stabilize uh, the the russian system to prioritize rebuilding at home and kind of having a benign external environment so russia wouldn't deal with a lot of external threats it could really focus on its you know domestic challenges Um, And it was not necessarily about reasserting dominion over the post-Soviet space at that time. At the same time, as far as Putin's agenda was concerned, in the mid-1990s, there was this idea that a U.S.-led world and dominated world was bad and that Russia was going to be unhappy if it was simply part of a U.S.-led international system and it wanted to carve out space for what it called a multipolar system and that was i think the kind of north star for russian foreign policy from the mid-1990s onward and a lot of us were pretty disparaging i'll be blunt about Like, who are they to kind of, you know, assert that? Or who are they to think that Russia should, you know, get a veto over things the U.S. wants to do? And given that Russia was really weak and the asymmetries were really big, Russia didn't get a veto. So we have NATO enlargement. We have all these things happening in the mid-1990s onward. And Russia's unhappy, but it's unable to block it or lie in the road and prevent it from happening. But as Russia became more powerful, here's the final point, it was able to assert, like, no, like, we're not going to be able to do this. And there's several scenes in the book where Putin's talking, for example, to, to Bill Burns, who was then the U.S. ambassador in Russia in the mid 2000s, saying, like, you know, you can't have it your way anymore. And, and America can't run roughshod over the over the interests of Russia like you used to do. And I, Putin, am and now here to tell you that bitter truth
0: and that strikes me as i mean that that's where i guess maybe an element of patriotism comes in but i i felt myself in reading some of these passages in the book wondering how much of that is also and this is again this is quite psychoanalytical but like how much of this is informed by you know putin just having this upbringing where he was told no and he did have to fight for everything and he's such a scrapper i mean he is not by any means someone who comes from a privileged background um and that must have been you know deeply informing on him when he's sitting down with these just incredibly powerful people. I don't know if you've spent much time thinking about like how he saw himself in relation to like you know President Bush who you know he got close to famously after 9-11, given just a what a different background the two of them came from. Or if that even entered into his calculus.
1: I'm not sure how much you know the Putin backstory matters except as a tool for bamboozling Westerners and sort of the thing I'm thinking Mm. about is how Putin claimed to George W. Bush that he was a devout Christian and he had this cross that he had found in the ashes of his dacha when his dacha burned down in the mid-1990s. I'm personally kind of dubious about how much the backstory mattered. What I think really mattered is power and that the power differentials. And at what point was Russia powerful enough to tell the United States, no, and we're not going to allow this, or we're going to seize on, and this is a big theme of the book, the opportunities and the points when Russia could either cut the U.S. down to size, it could try to tie Gulliver up. You know, when could the Lilliputians tie Gulliver up? And what could Russia do to damage the U.S. brand? And you see a lot of this. And I think of like, we're now almost at the 10-year mark of Russia being pretty effective, starting with the uh, arrival of Edward Snowden in Russia in 2013, at doing things to make the U.S. look hypocritical, to try to create tensions between the U.S. and some of its most important allies, like Germany, which obviously was very impacted by the Snowden revelations. And then when can you use the problems that have been accumulating inside Western Societies as a result of the Great Recession in 2008 and the Great Financial in the Global Financial Crisis to undermine the cohesiveness of Western societies and play on the the anger of average people and the sense that elites in the West are overcompensated and the losses they incur are being socialized. Um, how does Russia, you know, leverage some of that for its own benefit? And we can talk about why that. Um, has been at the fore since the war in Ukraine started in 2014 of Russia's strategy. I don't know if those tools were um, utilized by the Russians um, badly. I think they used what they had at their disposal. And so to, to bring the story to more up to the current moment, in 2014, Putin was pretty angry at the way the Obama administration created a transatlantic response to Russian aggression against Ukraine, and they tried to undermine that Western coalition. They wanted to, you know, promote dissension within the Western camp and make the Western camp less def- less effective. And so you saw Russia building bridges to populist nationalist groups in Germany and France and Britain and in the U.S. throughout that 2014, 2016 period. And part of what the book tries to tell people is how none of those successes happened overnight. They took a while. There was a lot of kind of trial and error. There were a lot of things that didn't pay off. But then there were these things that paid off spectacularly well. Brexit, I don't want to claim is you a know, Russian invention, but the Russians certain, certainly certainly. You know, uh, were playing footsie with people like N- Nigel Farage, who was a prime advocate for for Brexit, and this financier Aaron Banks. Um, and then, likewise, there was a huge effort to embrace the Tea Party and movement conservatives in the U.S. in this time frame. And then the Trump era—you know—there was a real Russian embrace of Trumpism and the the people around Trump.
0: There's also, I mean, you spent some time in the early part of the book talking about you know Putin's efforts to make Russia just a bigger, more powerful player on the international stage in its own right. And I'm thinking of when he lobbies, you know, successfully to get the Olympics brought to Russia, and he's also lobbying FIFA to host the World Cup, which is appropriate now since we're, we're watching those matches unfold. But talk about that period and and what he was willing to do and why he felt, you know, sport and the Olympics in particular would be, you know such a, such a a boon for Russia. And I have to say, I remember the Sochi Olympics as having, you know, gone off, not so great. I mean, we hear, you know, the stories about the athlete villages that, you know, didn't have working toilets. And I remember like the Olympic ring that burned out in the opening ceremony, but what did that mean to him to, to secure the games? And, um, and what did we learn about the way he went about doing it? What did we learn about Putin?
1: I see that period where Russia has become fabulously wealthy throughout the 2000s, largely on the back of the huge run-up in commodity prices and oil prices, as a moment where Russia is trying to show the world, like we've, in Putin, we've really built something here, but it's pretty superficial. And yeah, you can bribe the leadership of the IOC, you can bribe the leadership of FIFA and get these awards to host the World Cup, to host the 2014 Olympic Games, um, but that doesn't really buy you respect. And there's a great side of Russian uh, political culture and of Putin himself that's about respect. And it's, it's you know, my former boss, Strobe Talbot, used to say a lot of this is the Rodney Dangerfield syndrome. And, you know, you know, I don't get enough respect. And there never will be enough respect, I think, at any point for Putin, and we've learned that. Um, this is a man who has accumulated grievances and who has... You know, built in his own mind, a real inferiority complex vis-a-vis the West. But what's underlying all of it, and I think this is the part that's really important that comes across in the book, I hope, is a fear that the West is out to promote regime change and that it uses this idea of color revolutions, which is a Russian uh, concept, to get rid of regimes it doesn't like. And we saw this starting in the year 2000 in the student-led overthrow of the Milosevic government in Serbia. It then returns in Georgia and in the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004. And Putin is obsessed with the threat that the U.S. is out there using NGOs, using uh, IT companies, using U.S. Uh, funded operations like the National Democratic Institute and the International Republican Institute as tools of geopolitics in the Arab Spring. But what's amazing is if you think about all the misreading of Russian Ukrainian history that Putin embodies and this horrible article he wrote in the summer of 2021, all of that is trace, you can trace it going back to the year 2000. A, a crystallized view of like what the U.S. does, what the U.S. intelligence apparatus does, what the State Department does, what the White House does. And it's, in, it's created a level of paranoia in the Russian leadership about U.S. intentions. And I don't think for a minute that any of this Russian uh, paranoia is founded in reality, but it is who they are. And you see it even in the the Chinese reaction to the political protests about COVID restrictions in recent weeks, you know, similar talk and similar view about color revolution and arguing that anyone who supports these things clearly isn't doing it as a, you know, uh, sincere effort. They're doing it because someone paid for it and someone's put them up to it. And that's a very convenient political framing to portray your enemies at home as tools or proxies of Western governments or the United States. And that Putin has been a a very, you know, equal opportunity opportunist throughout his time in office. And it's worked really well for him because the Russian elite has been able to say anyone who's, you know, against us or who's, you know, whether it's Navalny or protesters who were out on the streets of Moscow in 2011, 2012, they're not doing this because they're Russians. They're doing this because someone's put, you know, paying for them to do it.
0: Yeah, your your last statement there kind of sets up the maybe answers partly the question I want to ask you, which is, are there others in the Russian elite, maybe around Putin, maybe not necessarily close to him, who who don't share this misguided, paranoid kind of view that has built up for him now over the course of two decades? Uh, which it seems he will not be disabused of these notions, obviously. Um, But are there there other elements of Russian society that just see things more clearly and and probably I think you and I would agree they actually are and who might even be in a position to lead Russia if Putin left the scene?
1: Um, Well, yes and no. I'm sure there are tons of Russians who think this is nonsense and that the Arab Spring didn't happen because Google engineers were paid by the CIA to stage demonstrations in Tahrir Square. I think there are plenty of Russians who understand that. And there are plenty of Russians who understand that the protests in the Maidan in 2014 did not happen because somebody pushed a button on President, Biden, President Obama's desk in 2014 to bring this about. Like I'm sure there are lots of Russians who know that, but they don't have political weight. And they certainly don't shape Putin's thinking. And the book is really, you know, tries to explain why for Putin and his inner circle, like they have a unified theory about all this. And what's remarkable and one of the things that was really fun in the book is if you look at, for example, the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, Sergei Nerishkin. If you look at the statements he makes in his other job, which is head of the state historical commission, Russia rewrites its history all the time, and there are these people like Narishkin who put on big demonstrations of "We've been digging in the archives, you know, and here's our latest findings, um, and here's what you know. We'll explain our history to you through these very polluted political lenses." Um, It's remarkable now when they go through these different milestones. One of the most funny ones was the, the uh, anniversary of the October Revolution. The Russian official narrative now about the October Revolution is that it was a foreign plot and that the lesson of the October Revolution is that you have these useful idiots like Lenin who are manipulated by foreign intelligence services to bring a revolution about in Russia. And Russia needs to be protected against this threat going forward. So it's, they're pretty consistent in I mean, it sounds, their, like, it sounds
0: like heresy to even suggest it, right? That the the, the yeah. revolution was was somehow a corruption of outside forces.
1: Yeah, but what's funny, and there's also a scene about this in the book. Is I was I was once at a dinner with the former head of the German intelligence service, and I was decrying, in my way, how the Russian uh, influence over the the Trump campaign in 2016, and they're 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 playing footsie with candidate Trump was the greatest influence operation in history. And the German at the dinner table was like, no, no, I'd say our work with Lenin might've been the greatest, it was the greatest covert operation, influence <laughs> operation in history. So they they were very proud of what they had done.
0: I love it. I love it. Um, so let, let's talk a bit about Trump. But, I'm, I'm, you know, we actually, at the Post, we did, a I did not personally, but there was, we did a graphic novel kind of the Mueller report. And it's, it's a, an interesting way of treating Trump also as kind of like this, you know, caricature or character. Um, you must have many thoughts on this and we don't have enough time to go into all of them, but what are some of the the, the big things that you seize on when you think about what is the, you know, if you want to answer it as Trump's affection for Putin or is there a mutual affection? Does Putin see a useful idiot in Trump? Like, what is the, what are the the strong characteristics of, of that relationship as you see them?
1: I... And I mean, this is cobwebs of analysis that I'm peeling back and you can you can hear them over your headphones. Um, I always thought that the Trump candidacy for the presidency was largely about making money, Mm. no real expectation that he was actually going to win. And as he's a candidate, he's doing things like throwing out various business ideas to people and people are coming to him with business ideas, like we're going to build these hotels in Moscow. And then Putin uh, spokesmen are getting, you know, pitch, pitches by Michael Cohen and others in the Trump entourage. And then when the question is being asked to candidate Trump, do you have any businesses in Russia? Or are you doing anything in Russia we should know about? And Trump is lying as a candidate. No, oh, no, I don't have any business in Russia. It's all made up knowing full well that there are these business ideas that are actually being discussed with senior figures around Putin. So I think that compromises Trump from the earliest days where he's lying to the American people about his interest in doing business in Russia. Um, There are people in his entourage who are being approached by any number of cutouts for the Russian intelligence system um, and who are being wined and dined and cultivated um, there are people like Mike Flynn and Steve Bannon who have been targeted as well and who were either unaware that they're being targeted or who don't care. And it's not really clear with some of them which is which. You know, Bannon um, in the post-2014 period has you know said nice things about Putin um, and his support for Judeo-Christian values. And we need to you know take this all very seriously. Um Flynn obviously was, uh, you know, invited and paid to go to an anniversary dinner in Moscow, sponsored by the Russian uh, propaganda network RT. So, I mean, there's all this stuff happening. I don't know if Trump had strong, deep thinking about any of this. But I do know that he thought that the fact that people were using it was going to delegitimize his great victory in 2016. And so damned if he was ever going to let anybody have a full accounting of what his people were up to or what he himself was up to, and so he just denies, denies, denies. But because he's Trump, he's super undisciplined, and we see this throughout his presidency. Like he doesn't really understand that the Russians are going to take advantage of this, that the Russians are going to, you know, hold it over him, um, and that you can't make the great break with us foreign policy that trump was seeking to implement and we see this with the literally from the earliest stages of putin of trump's candidacy in 2016 where he's disparaging ukraine he's disparaging that the people of crimea shouldn't be allowed to reunify with russia he says things publicly like this so he's a you know it's almost like it was there throughout basically that the Russians could have their way with Donald Trump and he didn't seem to care. Mm. And I think for all of us who were watching it at the time, we were just kind of in horror. Um, Like, why is it, you know, why is this okay? Like it's not okay. And you can't just trade off Ukraine as, you know, a, as a, as a playing card, like the people of Ukraine don't wanna be part of Russia. That's, that's, that's not a, a useful concept. But also if you remember going back to these days, the people around Trump had this idea that Russia was gonna be our great partner in Syria and we were gonna fight radicals in the Middle East together. I mean, all this is just, it was just loopy, but the Trump people seemed to buy into it and the Russians were really good at kind of wrapping them around their finger. And that's a big—that's a big part of the book as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and this, this, here's a big hypothetical, but I wonder—you've probably thought about this. Had Trump been reelected, um, how would things have been different in Ukraine? Would Putin still have invaded? Would he have invaded, thinking the U.S. response would be different? Do you do, do you think about that? I mean, within, and, and knowing that the, what kind of an affirmation that may have even been for Putin if the United States reelected Donald Trump.
1: Well, think about it. Ukraine policy under Trump was a debacle. And mm-hmm. you had um you have you know people inside the administration at the at various stages who push certain initiatives forward. For example, let's give the Ukrainians more military equipment, like the javelins that had been so controversial in the Obama era. So there were people pushing initiatives, and it showed the unruliness of the Trump foreign policy that you could do this. And, you know, and basically in contradiction to where Trump himself stood. But U.S. support for Ukraine was not strong in the Trump era. It was more a question of like, could certain uh, senior figures in the foreign policy team keep their fingers in the dike and avoid the whole thing from from blowing up? But it was not about the, you know, let's push the Russians back. Let's, you know, give the Ukrainian state everything it needs to consolidate um, its independence and territorial integrity and all the rest of it. It was more just how do we do the least harm um, given the president's, then president's proclivities and support for, for what Putin wanted. But at no point did I see, you know, Strong U.S. support coming from Trump himself for Ukraine, and I don't think the Russians were as worried about what was going on in that region because they basically felt they had Trump where they wanted him. So I don't think they had the same worry that they ended up developing about Joe Biden, Um, which is like, "Huh, this is going nowhere good." And you know, part of the you know the analytical work I did at Carnegie in late. 2021 was to explain why war was coming. And I wrote this co-wrote this paper with a colleague called Putin Putin's unfinished business in Ukraine. Um, and it was to really show why the opportunism in Putin's behavior was going to get the best of him and why he was going to push hard into Ukraine and go to war. And it was largely based on this vision that like over time, us support for Ukraine was just going to keep expanding. And we're going to see hundreds of millions of dollars poured in to uh, support U.S.-Ukraine security cooperation, intelligence cooperation, political cooperation, all of that over time is just going to be bad for Russia if you're sitting on the Russian side of that um, equation. And it would be better to kind of knock it off and sort of force the U.S. to knock it off through military means and sort of reset the whole relationship on the back of a rapid military move against Ukraine
0: do you think putin has an end game in mind right now in ukraine i mean but by now he obviously i think there's no more question that he knows it's it's not going well i mean there was some questions i think maybe in the beginning as ukraine was mounting counteroffensives, was was putin really informed about what was happening i always had the mind the view that i'm sure he's informed on it but he certainly knows the position and, and where they are now in the terrain is he thinking of a way out of this or Is he just so invested that he has to just keep going uh, until, you know, the bloody end, whatever that might be?
1: I would be careful about assuming that we know anything about Russia's endgame. And, you know, they've told us they want regime change. They want a beholden Ukraine that isn't really an independent, sovereign country. Um, Like they've been really clear that that's the goal. Um, they haven't gotten it and they're unlikely to ever get it. Um, but if you're on their team, I think they're hoping that eventually the West will lose interest that, you know, we have attention deficit disorder. They're hoping that Ukraine will crack. The West will, you know, be unable to keep, uh, Humpty Dumpty, uh, together and that it's going to cost a lot of money for the West to support Ukraine on an open-ended basis, that we're, we're just not going to stay the course and that, you know, we're going to run out of ammunition or all these other, you know, military commitments we're making are going to be really hard to sustain. And, you know, lest we forget, like the U.S. has elections in 2024 and that there could be a new U.S. president who shows up who looks at things very differently than Joe Biden does. So that's that's their hope. I think in the meantime, they're just going to get chewed up and there'll be all this, you know, intense military pressure on the Russians in the meantime, and the Ukrainians are doing a marvelous job of, of making this very painful. But I don't think that the fundamental goals have changed. And even if Putin can't get what he wants, he's still sort of hoping and fantasizing that something's gonna crack and that, you know, the Western coalitional fracture, Zelensky will, you know, um, not be able to keep it together um, most of these are you know putting hope over experience. Um, but it is you know part of the, the DNA that Putin has that like he just like as long as I'm waking up in the morning and I'm feeling healthy, like I'll just keep going. And you know, we have this image of him as having, you know he's embarrassed or this is bad because you know lots of Russian soldiers have gotten killed. Like he doesn't face the same societal pressures, economic pressures that a Western leader would. And he's not running for re-election. Like, he's, he's the czar.
0: What do you make of all of these persistent stories about his, his health and whether he's ill or has blood cancer or, you know, he disappears for a period of times because he's having weird medical treatments? I mean, that seems to be a part of his kind of mystique and mythology, too.
1: I guess, I mean, I, you know, I still bank on what Bill Burns said, which is that Vladimir Putin is entirely too healthy. Um, I think we should not, you know, (laughs) that was a good line. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it would be, you know, obviously it would be great if Vladimir Putin weren't on the scene and we didn't have to deal with him. We don't have the luxury of that reality. Like the reality is like Vladimir Putin's around, Vladimir Putin is in charge. Vladimir Putin is not facing uh, domestic political turmoil that threatens his hold on power. Vladimir Putin is not dealing with an all out military collapse that is going to, you know, basically allow the Ukrainians to run the Russians out of town on a rail tomorrow to pre-2014 lines of control. Like, we're going to have a long-term, very contested, dangerous confrontation with Russia for as long as you and I are probably working on these issues. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely possible that Putin will be in charge for the balance of your and my professional career. And that's a scary thought. And I'm not I mean, it's rickety, it could all change tomorrow. <clears throat> Vladimir Putin could get hit by a bus tomorrow. But but I think my baseline is that this man isn't going is not going anywhere and we're not done with him. And so what's he gonna throw at us? And that's
0: what we have to be ready for. Well, you make the comparison at the end of the book. To, don't give that away,
1: Shane. Don't give that away. Oh, OK. I'm not going to say spoiler. you compare him to You're going to give, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna give the, the punchline of the whole book away,
0: man? Other aging leaders, let's just say, <laughs> people who hang on a long time. You, you, you do make the point, though, and I don't think this is giving anything away, but to say that, that seeing Putin as he wants us to see him rather than he is only makes that problem worse. And, and, and again, I think that's what's just so interesting about – the book is so much of the book. It seems to me is devoted to trying to understand how Putin sees himself and how he wants to project this this image. And again, doing it as a graphic novel is a really, um, you know, effective way of kind of making that that point and interacting with the biography differently because you're seeing him play out this way. Um, do you just say a few words in the minutes we have left about. Um, your illustrator um, Brian box Brown and, and and just a little bit about the process of making a graphic novel how how does it work? I mean do you write the narrative and then Brian sort of illustrates it is there a back and forth what's that like?
1: yeah sure thing just real quick on the first part where I was trying to tell you not to give the spoil you know not to be the spoiler is that we have a tendency and this is true in the run-up to the war it's true today with the war to say, oh, this isn't rational or I wouldn't do it this way or this is self-defeating. Yeah. And then we act surprised when Putin goes ahead and does it. And I and that's the part of the book that I'm just really trying to insist on is like, just because we think it's dumb or it got a lot of people killed doesn't mean Putin won't do it. Right. And we just got to stop living in our wishful thinking bubbles right. And and think about who this guy is what he's capable of. He's shown us a lot of examples of what he's capable of. And we've got to be ready. And we can't just keep assuming that some happy ending is going to materialize that saves us from him. Like, that's that's not the world we're in, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. It's the famous Maya Angelou quote of when people show you who they are, believe them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Believe who Vladimir Putin is and think about what he's good at. Think about what his relative strengths and weaknesses are and plan accordingly. And he's yeah. not ten feet tall, but he's not nobody. Or you know, right. he's not. He's not. He's he's coming at us, and we got to be ready. So just keep repeating that mantra. Um, on Brian, basically, when I first started talking about this book with the editor at Macmillan, Mark Siegel, who uh, runs the graphic novel imprint. The, um, that's called First Second. He gave me some books about, like, the epistemology of comics, these really cool theoretical mm. books. And then he gave me books that were showing, like, here's how, like, people do it. There are these, you know, biographies of Richard Feynman and Albert Einstein and, like, these kind of more, like, black and white earnest scientific biographies. And he was kind of like, no, don't do one of those. And then he showed me some books by Box Brown, whose, whose real name is Brian Brown. And they were books about Andre the Giant and um, a biography of Andy Kaufman, the star of Taxi, the American comedian. And I saw this guy's books and I was like, these are so weird. They're like super minimalist. They're super spare. They don't have any of the noir trappings of like Game of Thrones or The Watchmen. They're really weird. And then at some point, my editor called me. He's like, yeah, Brian wants to do your book. And Brian Brown had never drawn someone else's book. He'd only done his own books.
0: Oh, that's And it was,
1: it was really cool because A, I was like, wow, I'm totally Brian Brown's fanboy. This is awesome. This guy's going to work with me. It's going to be so different than what I would have imagined because it doesn't match any of the kind of hyper realist stuff that I, you know, normally associate with this genre. But also it was really fun because Brian didn't have Uh, a view of like, you got to do it my way. It was much more like when I would say to him, like, hey, Brian, here's some images of Putin as a teenager. Can you draw this? And I would go on search engines and try to find non-cliched Putin images, like things that were underappreciated, or I would find things in declassified memoirs. I mean, declassified documents or people's memoirs of dealing with him. I was like, How do we illustrate Putin's brain? Like I have someone talking to me privately describing like what it's like to negotiate with Putin. And they have this really cool image of like what his brain looks like. And then Brian would just unleash this great stuff. And it didn't come with like dancing bears or matryoshka dolls or any of the kind Mm -hmm. of visual cliches that most people associate with how to be visual shorthanders of Russia. And that that was the funnest part of this whole project.
0: Yeah, well that's it, it's a very successful collaboration, that too, in that you're right, there is not a lot of the trappings of um, uh, the kind of the iconography of Russia that is familiar to us in the West, and I think that's one of the ways that the book succeeds too. Um, so it is our tradition here on Chatter that for the last question of the interview, I reach into the Chatterbox, which I am holding for you here, to select a uh, pre-written question at random, uh, which will close out our discussion. So your question is... You may have actually already answered this without having known the question. Um, Who was your mentor?
1: Ooh, so I had, as I mentioned earlier, my first Russia-related job boss was Eric Edelman, which was, and Eric is still someone I'm in touch with. The other person who really influenced me the most was my boss at the State Department and the White House, Jim Steinberg, Mm, who's now the president of Johns Hopkins SICE. Sure. Or dean, um, but he was head of policy planning and hired me when I was 26 years old. And then, um, uh, brought me to the white house, uh, after that and working for him and, you know, knowing Jim to this day has really been transformative.
0: And you've got a lot of amazing blurbs from people on the book who no doubt had an influence on you too. One of which, uh, on the front, Madeline Albright, the late Madeline Albright, uh, who called the book absorbing and visually stunning. So that's a pretty nice tribute from her.
1: Absolutely. And I you know I had the privilege of working with her both at the State Department and the White House and then also in my consulting hat at Albright Stonebridge Group, which is an international business advisory practice.
0: All right. Um, well, Andrew Weiss, the book is Accidental Czar: The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. It is a very enjoyable read uh, as people can tell from our discussion. Uh, it's a rich book. There's a lot of depth here. It's a very it'll get people thinking. Uh, and thank you for coming on the show to talk about it. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you for sharing your experience uh, on what has been your life's work of trying to make sense of this country and its uh, its leader who is not going anywhere.
1: Thank you so much, Shannon. This was great.
0: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at ThatWasChatter.